Welcome to the Gigabyte Weekly Podcast. This week's episode is kind of taking another step back like we did last week and we're going again to the basics, maybe a little bit more than the basics, we'll say. We'll see how we get into it. So today's episode is focused on Ethereum and we're kind of doing a little bit of a different layout and in the intro for once I'm actually joined by James. James, who are we having on the podcast today? So today, Sam, is a special podcast, podcast number 11 and like you said, taking it back a bit and we have Dr. Paul Ennis, who's a lecturer in University College Dublin, where you and I both went, and he's also a, a, a journalist for CoinDesk, and he's going to be joining us to talk about Ethereum and what Ethereum is. Yeah, so we're, we're looking forward to having him on, and we'll cut to that now in a second, but we've kind of we've kind of got a couple of questions for him that we want to, for him to kind of go through for us. Obviously, we've mentioned Ethereum a lot in the podcast, and you know, we've kind of done a few more kind of solo ones on Bitcoin, and Obviously, everyone that knows crypto knows Bitcoin. Ethereum's kind of normally second on that list of what people would be familiar with. But what I find often is no one knows what Ethereum actually does. It's not like Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin could be digital gold or it can be currency or anything. Ethereum doesn't really work like that. And I think that's kind of the crux of what we want to get into. You know, Why is Ethereum such a solid project? And what is it going to change? And, you know, why Ethereum versus some of the competitors? So you might know Cardano or Solana, James, are there any other ones? Yeah, Polkadot will be a big one as well. Yeah, so like there's a lot of like kind of smart chain or smart contract platforms. They're all in competition with Ethereum. And I think that's kind of what we want to get to the get to the bottom with with, uh, with Paul Ennis. Um, so I'm looking forward to having him on and enjoy. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Okay, and we're back. And like we mentioned in the introduction, we are joined by uh, Paul Ennis. Uh, Paul, do you want to give a short introduction to yourself and maybe a little bit about your background? Um, yeah, so I'm a lecturer in the College of Business, uh, University College Dublin. My research focuses on uh, Bitcoin, or used to focus on Bitcoin more and more these days. Uh, it's essentially Ethereum. And I try to take a position that cryptocurrencies are best understood culturally or socially rather than purely uh, from a technical basis or a um, financial basis. Well, that, that's a really interesting perspective, actually. And also, Paul, um, I noticed you're also a journalist for Coindesk. Is that true? Um, yeah, yeah. So I just I just submitted an article to Coindesk today. Um, I published I've published in Coindesk since around 2016. Um, Usually just uh, little bits of research, but recently I've become uh, more or less not a columnist, but I, I submit, uh, you know, every once every two weeks, I'll try to get something into Coindesk as well. Um, I think it's important if you're researching crypto to, uh, you know, get involved. That's a big part of how I try to approach things. And that includes, I think, trying to synthesize my, my research in a way that is uh, outside of academia and, you know, into the uh, the Coindesk reader, the, you know, mainstream crypto reader as well. Okay. And so just to go back to what you said there, I think it's an interesting point. How do you view Ethereum like socially as opposed to technologically? Because obviously a large reason behind the support behind Ethereum is because it's so technically powerful. What, what do you think the social implications of Ethereum are? Yes, I mean, Ethereum is super interesting because it basically represents something like the more progressive, um, I wouldn't use these, these terms are a little bit loaded, but more progressive, more um, left-wing or liberal-leaning, uh, like historically compared to Bitcoin's more libertarian uh, type perspective. So when people say, so when you see arguments for Ethereum is in some sense better because of its uh, technical basis, you know, because the... the, the uh, uh, flexibility of the Ethereum eco, uh, infrastructure, 
that actually is rooted in a uh, political or social perspective, the, the cypherpunk perspective that goes all the way back to the 1980s, 1990s. It's also present in Bitcoin, but in Bitcoin, it's mixed in with an economics focus. The libertarianism is very strong in Bitcoin, but in Ethereum, that's absent. And so when I'm trying to introduce or explain cryptocurrencies to people, I, I try, to, try to situate those uh, cryptocurrencies within the, the uh, let's say, the imaginaries or the political beliefs that, that drive them forward and help you to understand their decisions. So if you want to understand why is it that the Ethereum community is quite happy to do a hard fork, uh, something that they did back in 2016, it's more around the idea that they're a more socially oriented community that believe in the power of technology, but in the service of people. Uh, you know, like the, the, the people come first kind of view, uh, whereas in Bitcoin, it's very unlikely you get a hard fork unless it's an adversarial situation like they had in 2017. So, uh, yeah, that, that's how I try to approach it, that the um, a technical focus will get you a, a description of how things work, but why things happen is a, a social or a cultural uh, issue. That's a really interesting perspective. I suppose we also did a podcast recently on what I assume would be the political orientation of crypto as a whole. We kind of tried to map it a little bit. And interesting that you brought up Bitcoin as being quite a libertarian technology. Just a side question just on that. Do you think all of crypto could be considered libertarian just due to the nature of decentralization in itself? You know, is it separating from banks and central authority? Uh, absolutely. So the... Uh, so libertarianism is a it's such a controversial and complicated term so on one end of the spectrum i, I guess you I, I sort of see that what we have in cryptocurrency is a libertarian spectrum so we have a, a right libertarian and that doesn't necessarily mean right wing as in the sense of like a right wing conservative view but right libertarian meaning the market solve solve everything uh more individualistic more get off my lawn don't tread on me very american influence kind of perspective and that's really where the bitcoiners exist they have a, a theory of society that's rooted in uh, deflationary economics, the idea of scarcity, which comes from libertarian gold bug uh, kind of philosophy going all the way back to, you know, like deep into the uh, American history. Whereas in uh, something like Ethereum, it's still libertarian, but it's more mutualist. So there's more of a collaboration aspect to it. So that's the, the other end of the spectrum, left libertarianism, where the individual is still important. It's still anti-centralization. But instead of it being, uh, you know, like, um, you know, don't tread on me, it's more like if we work together, we can keep the central authorities at bay. So the uniting term across the spectrum is not libertarianism exactly. It's a uh, yeah, decentralization. So the idea that uh, central authorities have failed us, the inherited financial system has, has uh, you know, failed to provide for us. And we're going to use this tool or technique of decentralization to achieve libertarian ends. So I would say, yeah, if you are, if you are looking for a word, uh, an imperfect word that describes cryptocurrency, but definitely did it best than other terms, I would say libertarianism. Uh, and then maybe say like libertarianism with a decentralization undercurrent or something like that. That's really interesting, Paul. Wow. And actually, this is just a slightly different topic now, but obviously Ethereum is the biggest smart contract platform currently available. But what would you think of some of its competitors, especially kind of the rise of Solana recently, being backed by the FTX founder and kind of, you know, Polkadot, those kind of rising projects. As well as that also, like socially as well, yeah, I know you have a big influence and, and, and concentration on Ethereum. Why would Ethereum be more important socially than the likes of these other platforms like Cardano? Yeah, I just submitted an article uh, to Coindesk on this very topic. It's called the tragedy, uh, tragedy of the uh, turret coin. So the idea that, um, 
in cryptocurrency, there's always a third coin. So there's always someone in the third spot. At the moment, it's actually annoying because Tether is in the third spot, which isn't really a cryptocurrency, of course. It's yeah. uh, just a stable coin. Um, but, you know, there's usually some cryptocurrency which is vying for this uh, third position, which is usually very attractive to people who are newcomers. So the new investor, they, they've missed out on Bitcoin, they've missed out on Ethereum, uh, and they, they sometimes there's a unit bias involved here. But generally speaking, what they're looking for is the idea of there's a challenger currency. This challenger currency is going to come along and it's going to like remove the incumbents, or at least it's going to like dislodge Ethereum. Bitcoin is uh, probably too entrenched. And so I think the attraction of the, the third coin, at least as I put it in this article, is that um, first that it's, it's new. And so, you know, people are, are drawn to that. But then there's also this aspect of trying to find something that's a little bit more mainstream or centrist. So uh, like historically, examples would be XRP. So XRP used to be until the SEC investigation, the third coin uh, for a very long time. And the attraction there is that it had some kind of like mainstream use case. It would like... Uh, be used in this Ripple uh, banking infrastructure. And so, you know, you would, uh, and then it also had this legitimation of having a company behind it instead of the shadowy super coders as we, uh, as we are called these days. So XRP had that. And then we had uh, Binance coin, which is another similar kind of approach. So you have a, a coin associated with an exchange that mainstream uh, Robinhood uh, app investors or Revolut app uh, investors in Ireland uh, use. And so they are, and they're attracted to this idea of something that has a, you know, it's a centrist uh, kind of third coin. So it's something a little bit safe. It doesn't have the radicalism of Ethereum or the radicalism of uh, Bitcoin. Same uh, with, uh, and, then, and then in the case of Cardano, which is a little bit different, it's not because there's a company associated with it, but because there's this idea of like academic rigor. So it's almost by association with academic peer review processes that Cardano is in somehow more, in some sense more respectable than the other cryptocurrencies because, you know, uh, professors and doctors look at it and all that kind of thing. So something I find quite funny as an academic because, uh, you know, uh, peer review equals to me a very long time to get anything done. It's like two years to get an article out. So it's probably not the best approach. And so I do think there's always something like that. And then, of course, right, what's the latest one? The latest fad is Solana. So Solana does the same thing. It says, well, you don't care about decentralization. What you care about is becoming the third coin uh, and then hopefully like displacing the other ones. So you'll sacrifice uh, decentralization for uh, like the uh, appearance of like, you know, decentralization. So you might just have like a few small nodes, same with Matic uh, and so on. So there's always examples uh, of this. There's always the, the centrist, uh, the attraction of the centrist mainstream third coin, um, usually associated in my mind with the newcomer, somebody who doesn't really uh, understand why Ethereum or why Bitcoin are seriously valued by people who are very unlikely to sell. So the actual hodler is not just motivated by financial concerns, they're motivated by deep philosophical, uh, I will never sell my Ethereum, I will never sell my Bitcoin, that kind of floor, a real floor, not an open sea floor, uh, where you know, people are uh, invested for reasons that go beyond uh, you know, uh, market trends. And so I think that's why I call it, um, it's like a tragic situation for the third coin because they're gonna constantly flip um, as they, as like people basically breeze through them, depending on the, the, the whims. But I think the biggest thing is the biggest difference I would say, yeah, is that Ethereum, uh, and I'd say this is true for Bitcoin as well, is that there, it's not just a, a financial investment. There's a, a value there that goes beyond that's like deeply rooted in a historical, uh, philosophical, social 
uh, view uh, that this is like a, we're building a new society as opposed to we're building a faster network or something. Yeah, I suppose that that phenomena of the third coin idea is really interesting. And I'm kind of curious, do you ever think we can kind of move past that idea of, you know, it's just a purely speculative, obviously all of it is speculative at this point, but, you know, more so than just like the newcomers, like you said, is it possible we're going to see another flippening, for example, is, is highly talked about. Do you think we'll ever see Bitcoin, Ethereum out of the one and two spot in that respective order? Do you think we'll see maybe like BNB or maybe Cardano down the line? Do you ever see that maybe taking over? Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a complicated one because, you know, one thing I'm sure you guys feel this and I'm sure your audience will feel this as well, is that in crypto, you never really want to make too many predictions because anything can happen, right? It's just this sort of a sense that everything is really surprising. Uh, and I've been surprised in the past. Uh, I do, um, I believe Ethereum eventually will, will flip Bitcoin at some point, probably within the next uh, year or two. Uh, just based upon the fact that it, you know, if it solves the environmental question, so if they, you know, if they manage to transition over to Ethereum 2.0, they they do the merge, and all of a sudden we had this environmentally friendly cryptocurrency where people can buy NFT art, all that kind of stuff. I think that would make Ethereum more attractive to the um, the uh, like the mainstream kind of audience, people who are maybe uh, more fretful to 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 use uh, cryptocurrency because environmental concerns, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I do think there's a strong possibility that Ethereum flips Bitcoin. Um, so, but that being said, I can't really envision a scenario where something flips one of the other, like where somebody gets into the number two um, position, although it has happened uh, in the past with Ripple and uh, Ethereum. So, um, but I, I feel, yeah, I don't have a good answer for it, but mostly because um, I think whatever it is, isn't currently on our radar. I don't get the sense that there's anything so dramatically different that they, they would be uh, large enough of a change to like flip Ethereum. N nobody's created something similar to Ethereum in term of, terms of the uh, you know, sheer technological innovation that was smart contracts. There's nothing really out there. It's always just you know, changing the consensus mechanism, speeding things up, uh, but it doesn't change the, the concept of what a blockchain is. And until somebody manages to do that, I think they're pretty safe. And just speaking of the whole environmental impact of crypto, Obviously, with Ethereum upgrading to Ethereum 2.0 and proof of stake rolling out, you know, do you see proof of stake coins substantially kind of overtaking proof of work coins? And do you see proof of work kind of being delegated to the older, the older generation of crypto? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I really enjoy uh, so this this new thing that that's come into the English language around you know anybody over the age of 25 is a boomer. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's this, this, this really interesting way in which uh, Bitcoin is sort of seen like that. It's almost this, because um, uh, typically when I was uh, introducing cryptocurrencies for a long time, I used to situate it and say that it was millennial money. So it arrives in 2008, 2009 era. And so it was attractive to millennial uh, people who uh, had been failed by the inherited financial system. So it's basically a reaction to the, you know, the collapse and the, the idea that the, 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 uh, the situation is precarious. You can't get like long-term positions. Uh, your, your actual boomer generation are better off than you uh, and aren't passing down the wealth. Um, but in the last few years, I've noticed that people treat Bitcoin as a, almost a dinosaur. It's a legacy currency. Uh, some people I've seen trolling the Bitcoiners say that Bitcoin is going to become like an NFT. You know, there's only 21 million of them. And if you collect one, it's like this really rare uh, old... Um, you know, kind of collectible, but, you know, you're not really supposed to use it. So 
yeah, so I think proof of work is something that simply isn't attractive to uh, a younger demographic. If you were doing a focus group today and you introduced uh, Bitcoin and you said, well, we're going to have this. Um, now, this was an oversight of Bitcoin. Uh, like Satoshi, when he created proof of work, he envisaged it being something where every individual, so every user of Bitcoin is going to be a peer in the peer-to-peer -peer network and was a miner, right? There was no differentiation between uh, miners, everybody who downloaded the software, downloaded the blockchain was going to be participating in the white paper, as he says, one CPU, one vote. So like one computer, uh, one vote. And then he didn't realize that there was this arms race uh, potential, the GPUs, the ASICs, the big industrial uh, warehouses. But if you were focus grouping it and you introduced it today and said, like, we have this consensus mechanism, the only problem is we're going to need uh, giant warehouses to consume the same amount of electricity as the nation of Sri Lanka. Um, and do you think this is going to be something that's attractive? And the first thing they'd probably say, well, it's going to attract a certain demographic. It's going to attract maybe like an older demographic who probably like don't care about this or don't believe in climate change. Maybe libertarians who would, you know, are probably in the similar bracket, not so concerned with environmental stuff. But you're going to entirely lose the, the younger kind of demographic who do care about it and do see it as something like a a wedge issue or, you know, a fundamental core uh, uh, plank that, you know, they say, like, if you're um, creating a political position, like, you're going to have to include green issues. So I think that's the, the, the issue that Ethereum, you know, sneaks past Bitcoin is probably this, where it says, well, you know, uh, we have this wasteful proof of work system. Uh, we're, we're eliminating that. We're switching off the machines. And so we're just going to have staking. So yeah, I think it's a demographic issue. In my in my in the classroom situation, normally what I see is people like Bitcoin; they're interested in it until the point of they discover the electricity uh, use. Once they see that, they they tend to turn on it, and then they they find Ethereum attractive because it's at least taking seriously uh, this kind of environmental concern. But yeah, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. You can't just sort of say uh, we're going to keep plugging forward with this um, nation state sized uh, energy consumption. Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine that we keep going the way we're going. Um, I saw recently that El Salvador are trying to mine Bitcoin using geothermal energy from a volcano, which is potentially a, a more green solution. And maybe if we if that was to be, you know, hard coded, that that's the only way we can mine it, then it's a more green network, I suppose. But I don't really see that happening. Um, so then kind of taking a little bit step back and going a little bit more general, we're talking about Ethereum specifically, but I suppose this kind of applies to the general industry. What kind of do you see as like the main hurdles or obstacles on the path to acceptance? And this can be in Ethereum or in crypto in general. Um, yeah, I mean, there there's a lot of what I would call almost... Um, uh, hidden barriers, because what happens typically with people who get enthusiastic about cryptocurrencies is they go through a rabbit hole type process. So they, they start off, uh, they're casual users, maybe they learn about Bitcoin, and then they learn about Ethereum. Before you know it, you know, they're introducing you to increasingly obscure and exotic cryptocurrencies that they discovered in a Telegram group or something. And then they, they become, you, well, you become so immersed in it. And then, of course, you've got the history as well. You begin to understand the lore uh, as well, um, is that you can no longer see the entry points um, and you can no longer remember how difficult it is to uh, like learn about cryptocurrency. So I would say if you step back, and this is something I'm, I'm interested in, I'm interested in uh, scams and hustles and, uh, you know, uh, cybercrime and all that kind of stuff. That's how I actually got into cryptocurrency. Originally, I was researching darknet markets uh, and that's how I encountered them. Um, 
So if you do that and you step back, for a lot of people, their first experience with crypto is something like an influencer scam. It's a guy on uh, YouTube. It's a Logan Paul, you know, shilling some kind of like really trashy uh, NFT project. Uh, and they get burned, you know, um, buying and selling and speculating on basically uh, trash coins, we'll call them. They have, of course, a, a different name. Um, so you get uh, you get the situation where um, like you you forget about the sheer the moat of like scam artistry that surrounds cryptocurrency. And then you also have the situation of how often people get burned. So, you know, like uh, artists entering the space are very routinely at the moment, um, like robbed, you know, this, they get hacked, they get social engineered on the discords, all that kind of stuff. So I think the first thing that we, we, we kind of suppress, but that the average person probably encounters more than we want to admit is the high level of crime in the space and the, the, the high likelihood of encountering crime scams and all that kind of thing. It's already there in society, of course, but in crypto, it's really escalated because we've got the irreversibility of transactions that once they've taken it, that's it situation. And um, the next is like the technical know-how, how much you have to know, um, how hard it is, you know, how hard it is to store cryptocurrency. So, you know, if you're explaining the process to somebody who's just starting out and you're going through even securing something like a MetaMask wallet, like it's, it's crazy if you abstract and you step away from it. It's like, yeah, you have to have this like 12 words and you're going to have to either, you're going to have to store them somewhere safe, but really there's not really that many safe places. Uh, definitely not on your computer. But then if you want to occasionally back up, you know, if you like add a new wallet, you're going to have to get it out again from wherever you stored it. So, I mean, it's much more um, complicated, I guess, than we, so I guess it's easy to forget like just how complicated the technology is, even though sometimes we present it as it's supposed to be this, you know, simpler, uh, permissionless, more direct way of uh, experiencing the web, like this web tree uh, kind of front end experience. But at the back of it, at the side of it is uh, a lot of security issues um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, for me, it's all about the uh, yeah, the biggest barriers is crime and um, maybe uh, like uh, underestimating the, the technical know-how that's involved because people who are interested in crypto probably already primed to be into technology already. And then, you know, we're forgetting about, uh, in an article we wrote a few years ago, we just called them like the average Joes, you know, so people who are uh, casual users uh, as opposed to technical ones. Yeah, I suppose I'm kind of curious here. So you said like crime, you see, and obviously, you know, cybersecurity is, is an important issue within crypto itself. Do you see regulation as a solution to that? Or do you see regulation overall as another hurdle? Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I steer clear of regulation. I'm, I'm definitely a, um, so I am a, a pro cryptocurrency person. And definitely, uh, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian, but I'm definitely on the side of uh, like regulation is, um, you know, uh, can become quite problematic and can stifle interesting innovations, all those kinds of lines of argument I'm pretty, pretty good with. Uh, I, I, I generally say that when people say cryptocurrency needs to be regulated, and so the kinds of things I'm talking about, like hacking, social engineering, they're already illegal is the way I, I try to put it to people. It's like we don't need new regulations for theft. I mean, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a new version of an old crime. So um, yeah, I would I would say the industry, um, it's more on us. It's more about uh, educating people as opposed to you know ne necessarily introducing more onerous uh, kind of regulation. And the problem with regulation is there's it, it, you know it introduces uh, also um, kind of like the the possibility of people. Uh, 
like I guess yeah so I take a minimalist approach like with the fewer laws the better you know because I don't think people should be criminalized uh, if it's possible so um it's up to us to uh like self-police I guess that would be a libertarian perspective we should it's it's on us as opposed to uh, on the regulators yeah, I mean I wish the regulators would agree um but okay I, I think just getting finally on just the the basics of Ethereum, you know, we've kind of done a really interesting deep dive into some of the social aspects, which is not really something I've ever considered, you know, I'm very bullish on Ethereum personally, just because of the technology behind it, the ability for things to be built upon it is where I see the true value of it. But what can you, if you're to name like two or three, what are like the biggest use cases behind Ethereum? You know, for example, there's the fact that you can stake it, well, we'll be able to, uh, the smart contracts, like what do you see as the key aspect of value within it? Yeah, quite a lot. I mean, Ethereum to me is the is the the miracle uh, of the the whole scene. I mean, the um, like the the sheer range of things that you can do on Ethereum is something I unfortunately have to track uh, quite a lot. I almost wish Ethereum would slow down sometimes and just have less uh, less going on. The number one, uh, I guess, there's three elements that I tend to focus on. I think uh, there's the organizational side of it. So on Ethereum, so if we think of what Ethereum is, it's basically a shared world computer. So a distributed world computer that anybody can use in a permissionless manner. So basically if you've come up with some kind of way of, um, you know, uh, some kind of novel uh, application, you can run it on this world computer. So that's the simplest way I tend to think about it. And the ways people are typically using it seems to break down into organizational financial and um, artistic or creative. So the first is probably decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. And these days, I mean, originally a DAO, which sounds extremely exotic, right? That sounds like something that should be in a science fiction novel, um, used to mean that uh, the um, you would create a smart contract and it would do things uh, in a way where it executed some kind of logic, you know, autonomously, it would do it on its own. Um, so that, that, that's the original sense, but really what people mean by a DAO today is you have um, a very light touch use of Ethereum. So people will decide that they wanna collaborate on some kind of project. So a good example would be Gitcoin. So this is where uh, you want to fund open source development. And so Gitcoin exists to support people who are creating stuff for the general Ethereum uh, ecosystem, but it runs itself as a DAO. So it runs itself as a decentralized autonomous organization. So people are able to vote on, um, you know, whether like certain types of projects qualify to be, uh, you know, uh, funded by, you know, Gitcoin or whether other projects are more like really entrepreneurial and shouldn't be considered a, a, as they call it a public good. So the way they do this is just occasionally they'll have a, a blockchain vote. So they'll just have a smart contract where if you own a, a certain token, you can uh, vote on the direction of the organization. So that's one example of a DAO, but that, that's sorry, it's a more serious version, but there's also more fun versions. So there's one that's uh, pretty famous now, which is called Friends with Benefits. So if you have 75 uh, Friends with Benefits tokens, you join this Discord. So it's just a token gated Discord uh, you get entry to the Discord, and then you just like meet other people if you if you want to uh, organize events like DJ events in like different cities. And they have a city version, city DAOs, um, or if you want somebody to make a, a video for you or something like that. So it's just like if you're in this community, you have friends with benefits, and the the blockchain part of that very rarely comes into play. 
Um, maybe there's like a major vote that happens once a month, which says like Friends with Benefits wants to introduce scholarships. That's something that happened recently. And then the community vote on that. So it's sort of a light touch. So I think the idea of a DAO um, is evolving toward a more uh, social uh, kind of uh, community basis where it's just a group of people who share a token. And if they need to, they can do a blockchain vote, but it's not exactly necessary. Um, then the next one, I guess, would be finance. So that's like DeFi, decentralized finance. Uh, that's, I guess, where you're, uh, the innovation there is you take the, um, you uh, take the, I guess, the previously idle or unproductive assets like from the, the token uh, kind of ICO era, um, and then you put them into like yield generating um, uh, vaults, all kinds of weird, weird stuff. I guess, like, I don't know whether you guys have covered uh, decentralized finance already, but it's probably like the hardest one to discuss. But essentially, these it's just smart contracts, and the smart contracts are uh, encoding strategies to put idle cryptocurrency or stable coins to work somehow. So that's the other, uh, like, really bo uh, booming kind of area. And then, probably the one that I enjoy the most these days is non fungible tokens. So the NFTs, where People are just creating artworks um, and storing them on. Um, well, I mean, sometimes there, there's obviously quite a bit of debate about this. Are they stored in the blockchain? Not really. But the, the, the kind of concept is that they're stored, at least a pointer is stored in the blockchain. And then the, the artwork is usually stored on uh, something called IPFS. But it's introduced this nice creative focus of people collecting art, becoming curators, uh, creating um, art specifically for the cryptocurrency community. So we have basically all the elements of a fully functional uh, kind of like mini mini city or uh, in an article I wrote for Coindesk not too long ago about Ethereum's political philosophy, I said that it's almost like a surrogate state. So what Ethereum is doing is it's creating analogs of what exists already in society. So whether that's organizational, financial or social. So um, organizational DAOs, uh, finance, DeFi, um, and then uh, artistic being the NFTs but they're decentralized analogs to what already exists, but are centralized in our society. So the art world is very centralized, you know, the institutions, the museums, uh, and then same for like the organizational uh, and finance side. So uh, from, my, from my view, uh, we're in the very beginnings of something like the creation of a counter state that's built along decentralized as opposed to centralized uh, lines. Wow, uh, you're, you're definitely, your, your knowledge is definitely unquestionable. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on this. And uh, yeah, I, I, personally, I think DeFi is, is going to be huge. Uh, I think it just kind of follows the general trend of how, how the internet has kind of put the power into the people's hands a lot more as, as time's gone by. And I think DeFi is kind of the next step in, in that sequence. Um, I think we're coming up to the 30 minute mark. So James, if you've no closing thoughts, I think we'll close it out there. No, I think that was really, really good. And it was really good to get kind of the whole the, the whole um, social aspect of it as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Paul. Uh, we really appreciate that. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, guys. And we're back, just the two of us, just kind of having a, um, a post-discussion chat just between myself and James. So, James, how do you think that went? That was unbelievable, Sam, to put it in one word. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Paul's... Um, knowledge is kind of unbelievable and how he talked about the whole social aspect of ethereum and how kind of the cypherpunks of the 80s and 90s created the kind of the perfect storm for crypto in general to take off yeah it's gonna be no surprise that the the part that i found really interesting was his kind of political takes on crypto itself and how he views kind of similar to what we said which is bitcoin as having like a libertarian association but interestingly kind of thought ethereum was a little bit more 
liberal left-leaning uh, because it's kind of community-focused. Um, I think it was really fascinating. Um, wh- what else would, would you say that was the highlight of that for you? I think his, his notion of the third coin, you know, how if people think they've missed out on number one and two, which in this case um, is Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's always going to be a third coin in that spot. So like he said, at the moment, it's Tether, which isn't really a cryptocurrency. And, you know, you, everyone knows our views on, tethers, on Tether at this point. But, you know, the rise of Cardano, BNB, all kind of the so-called Ethereum competitors, those kind of things, how he views them as just the third, the third coin. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, it's a concept that I've kind of thought a bit before, but never really worded correctly. And I think that's really interesting. Um yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I think um, all of our listeners will too. I, I hope, uh, I don't think it was too technical. Um, no, I think there's a bit in it for everybody. If you want the technical stuff, it was there. If you want just the basic introduction, introduction to Ethereum and smart contracts, it's there. I mean, it's. I'd view this episode as kind of for all levels. Yeah, and I suppose if anyone has any questions about anything you heard, like we are always open to helping people that are trying to understand the space a little bit better. It's kind of a lot what we do. That's kind of why we do the podcast in general. You know, our goal is to just keep people up to speed with the times that are moving and the the direction that the times are moving in is in the direction of crypto. Um, so I think we'll we'll leave it there. We just kind of want to have a quick chat afterwards. Um, as always, thank you for listening. This is podcast number 11. And uh, we're going to keep on going. If anyone has any questions, you can send them on to us at email uh, at gigabyteinvestment at gmail.com or Twitter at gigabyteinvest. And you can even find us on LinkedIn as well, uh, Gigabyte Investment. Uh, James, do you have any closing thoughts? Just everybody, you know, you know, you can listen to us on all all platforms now. There's no excuse anymore. Let's pump these numbers up again. Okay. Thanks very much, guys. And we'll see you next week. See you next week.